From the nation's capital, this is D.C. Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Today's program, ladies and gentlemen, predicting criminal risk. We're going to be taking a look at risk instruments. What are they? How good are they? From the Washington State Institute for Public Policy, we have Zachary Hamilton, Assistant Professor, Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology, Director of Washington State Institute for Criminal Justice at the Washington State University. Joining Zachary will be Mason Burley, Senior Research Associate, Washington State Institute for Public Policy, the website, www.wsipp.wa.gov. Gentlemen, welcome to D.C. Public Safety. Hello, thank you for having us. All right, risk assessments. Uh, I, you know, this is something that it seems to be is the foundation of meaningful change within the criminal justice system. We now, within the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency, my agency, we've been using risk instruments for about 10 years. Risk instruments are being used for sentencing. They're being used in all phases of the criminal justice system. Give me, first of all, whether or not you think risk instruments are the foundation of meaningful change within criminal justice, and then give me a layman's definition of what risk instruments are. Well, I can jump in on that. Uh, I, I do think risk assessments are, are the foundation of really how we move forward in the criminal justice system. Uh, a lot of what um, people have complained about in, in years past has sort of been the inconsistency, inaccuracy, and, and maybe the overuse of, of discretion uh, within the system. And what risk assessments do is they put everyone on an even playing field, or at least they attempt to put everyone on an even playing field uh, so that uh, everyone's judged in a similar manner. Um, in, in terms of what a risk assessment is, in terms of layman's uh, language, it's essentially a, a set of items uh, that you use, uh, maybe a survey or a questionnaire, or maybe they're items that are collected uh, from a mix of um, self-reported uh, questionnaires or uh, criminal history measures that, that are known within an agency's records. Uh, these items usually contain a mix of uh, what are called static items uh, that sort of look at the offender's criminal history, their age, uh, their gender maybe, um, but also some dynamic items too that, that try to focus on the offender's needs. Uh, so trying to examine you know, whether or not they have issues with regards to employment, substance abuse, uh, mental health, uh, residency, any sort of things that may directly or indirectly impact their future uh, criminal behavior or misbehavior on supervision. So we're uh, we're looking at at criminal history. We're looking at the age of the offender. We're, we're talking about possibly the sex of the offender. Um, th- there are static issues as well as dynamic issues that go into this that formulate a sense as to who this person is and what their level of risk is and what their level of need is in terms of social services. That is correct, and some of what you're describing in terms of of how risk assessments and and needs assessments have been extended throughout the criminal justice system is about the idea that there's certain behaviors that we would like to predict. Um, Recidivism is one, but there's others that you had mentioned that may exist at a different point within the system. So an individual coming into the system um, may have a first risk or needs assessment completed uh, at, at the pretrial phase, and maybe a judge might use that to identify whether or not this person would be a risk of flight. And at that point, you might be trying to predict recidivism, but you also might be trying to predict uh, failure to appear. 
Uh, once the person's incarcerated, you might want to predict infraction behavior. Once they've been released or, or re-enter into the community, you'd want to predict recidivism behavior, but maybe you'd also like to predict compliance while on supervision. So there's, there's a multitude of outcomes in which you can examine and utilize these tools uh, to create essentially prediction models. So what we have is law enforcement using them, pretrial using them, the judge using them in terms of sentencing, parole and probation agencies using them to figure out how to, how closely to watch this individual. Uh, correctional systems, prisons could be using them in terms of the potential for uh, good behavior within the prison system. So across the board, risk instruments are becoming a bigger part of the criminal justice system. Yes, as, as more individuals are, are gathering data, um, and more agencies are gathering data, tracking offenders and, and identifying how you can uh, utilize that data to, to better supervise, more efficiently supervise, or even uh, remove individuals from supervision uh, to create a better system is, is, I think, where risk assessment is heading. Now, I do want to go back to Dr. Hamilton in terms of discussion as to how effective these instruments are, but Mason Burley, I'm going to go to you. This whole issue of risk assessment instruments started with the insurance industry, did it not? Uh, the insurance industry for decades, multiple decades, has been assessing the risk of individuals on their caseloads, if you will, as to whether or not they're going to uh, be a risk uh, in terms of health, uh, whether or not they're going to have a heart attack, whether or not they're going to be unemployed, whether or not they're going to have health problems uh, across the board. Uh, am I right or wrong? Well, I, I think, you know, actuarial instruments have been used in a lot of different arenas, um, certainly outside the public policy area. Um, I, and I wanted to emphasize, and insurance would certainly be one of those, um, but the history in Washington State really goes back to, um, start, you know, quite an extensive um, and evolving use of risk assessments in the criminal justice area, if I can focus on that for a second, because sure, I think the history is pretty in, important in terms of the utility that we found in the state. Um, you know, initially in the late 90s, the juvenile justice system um, decided to look at some evidence-based approaches and to target who might be best served in some of those programs, um, they developed a risk assessment instruments for all the juvenile courts in the state. Um, that later evolved into supervision, as Dr. Hamilton mentioned, with Department of Corrections, and then looking at um, who is at most risk of you know, further crime and looking at supervision resources and how those should be targeted to high-risk individuals. That risk assessment has gone through several iterations, and um, Dr. Hamilton and, and his institute have um, really refined and improved um, as they've, they've learned from what works best with an instrument. Um, and it's been adopted in other areas, as he mentioned, throughout the state with, you know, pretrial and judges deciding information about, um, about bail and pretrial decisions based on historic risk. Um, and then finally, you know, the work that we recently released at the Institute looked at um, the mental health population and what um, individuals with commitments are um, involved in the forensic mental health system, um, the type of risk they pose. So I think that um, it's as becoming more recognized the value of it in Washington state and we provide a good you know test case in some of these scenarios as individuals move it through different phases of the criminal justice system. Before continuing I do want to plug the Washington State Institute for Public Policy as putting out some of the most 
easy-to-read, clear, precise research findings, not just within the criminal justice system, but across government, um, uh, across all uh, phases of government. But I do want to congratulate the Washington State Institute for Public Policy uh, to its dedication to put out the research that the, the rest of us who are not researchers can understand and uh, policymakers uh, can, can grasp and run with. So you guys have uh, probably over a decade of experience putting out nice, clear, and concise uh, public policy research. Again, their website, www.wsipp.wa for the state of Washington.gov. Did you want to continue, Dr. Hamilton? Uh, I I think Mason covered a a lot of what's been done, but but yeah, it's it's going back uh, several years, even back to to 1997, uh, when when the Washington State Institute of Public Policy, namely uh, one of their their key researchers, Robert Barnowski, uh, created one of the first juvenile risk assessments that was used throughout the state, and that sort of spawned this idea of uh, collecting data over time, tracking offender populations, and readjusting. Uh, those assessment models to improve prediction over time. As people change, as the population changes, as even the, the criminal statutes change, um, the, the focus of the assessment is, is fine-tuned over time. And that's something that was put into place early with, with WISUP. Um, and, and I think those traditions are starting to continue on now with these new adjustments to the adult risk tools as well. There's an endless list of policy questions I do want to get into uh, in terms of Microsoft coming out with an app that's uh, uh, predicting future criminal behavior, commercial applications that law enforcement is now using um, the Attorney General of the United States, Attorney General Holder, former Attorney General, who criticized uh, sentencing uh, or uh, instruments or risk instruments in, used in sentencing about possible bias. Uh, you know, every time that there's a mass shooting, there is a psychologist who gets on CNN and says, well, there's no way that we can predict future criminal behavior. So all of those are, all of those are issues that I want to get um, onto or discuss. But the, the biggest issue that people, when they come to me and talk to me is, Leonard, how effective are these things? And that's why I love your research. Uh, you mentioned the fact that you did something recent uh, talking about the criminal um, uh, population within the state of Washington, but also whether or not uh, the involuntary treatment population for mental health reasons, whether or not the risk instrument that the state of Washington was using could be used for both groups. And so I'm using that as the basis for this program. And while you say, while no risk instrument can predict future criminal offenses with 100 percent accuracy, the goal is to, is to create an assessment that has strong predictive performance. How strong is that predictive performance? Well, there's different industry standards uh, for for how we identify predictive performance. And uh, as you mentioned, you probably don't want me to go too far down the rabbit hole in terms of giving a statistics lesson. But uh, the the common metric in which people base an assessment on is is what's called an area under the curve statistic. And there's really ways of identifying you know the the strength of the instrument and industry standards that sort of set cut points within the statistic to say, you know, what's sort of a weak prediction, what's a moderate prediction, what's a strong prediction. Um, and what we're finding with these tools is that we advance our, our methods as we gather more data, as we're able to refine and, and really focus on specific types of crimes, um, not just any recidivism generally, but maybe focusing on uh, what predictors predict violent crime versus property crime or drug crime. You're able to really hone in on that prediction 
and and get strong models almost every single time. So without going too too much into the detail of, of what those industry uh, we tend to exceed the industry standards for what are called strong models, um, and, and a lot of our, our models tend to, to get into those upper echelons of, of being able to accurately identify uh, recidivism prediction across the population at rates over 70%. Well, over 70% would be astounding, and I think that gives individuals a fairly decent benchmark in terms of understanding risk instruments. In other words, there's no way that we can do this with 100% predictive behavior. That's impossible. But at the 70% level, that's pretty daggone good and pretty predictive. I want to get into the categories used in the research. Uh, What they tried to do was to do um, uh, focus on four particular categories. Uh, This was the division of correction there in the state of Washington, high violent, high non-violent, moderate risk or low risk. So they tried to keep it simple in terms of falling into one of those four categories, correct? Yes, uh, and really it's, it's, a, it's a big advance, and, and they've been doing it for a while in Washington State, uh, but it's a, it's a distinction that Washington State has that, that I believe is a big advance uh, as compared to other risk assessment instruments. Uh, anybody who supervises offenders will tell you that it, it's not just the probability of, of any risk, it's the type of risk that they pose. Many risk assessment instruments will essentially say, you know, what's, what are you low, moderate, or high risk, or, or what's your probability of risk for committing, you know, a new arrest or a new conviction? And that's great, but somebody that uh, has, let's just say, a, a 45% likelihood of committing a drug crime versus an individual that has a 42% likelihood of committing a violent crime, yeah, the percentages are different, but you, you're going to supervise those individuals differently, and the severity or, or the public perception of a particular crime is going to be of, of note. Um, and so an individual that, that may have a, a slightly lower probability of committing a violent crime may be supervised at a greater rate simply because uh, the threat to society or to public safety is a little bit stronger than that person that's, that's more likely to commit a drug crime. Is that coming through okay? Yeah, and perfectly. And and that's why I wanted to start off with about the, the issue of fundamental change within the criminal justice system, because it seems as in terms of evidence-based practices, what we're saying is, is that we should be focusing our resources on the highest risk offenders and not focusing our resources on lower risk offenders, uh, because you know we're talking about 5 million human beings on any given day under community supervision currently, under community supervision on any given day according to U.S. Department of Justice data and parole and probation agencies throughout the country, they could have ratios of 100 to 1, 200 to 1. I've seen 250 to 1. Luckily, here in Washington, D.C., our our maximum caseload is 50 to 1. For specialized cases, it's much lower than that. But when you have that disparity between, say, in terms of community supervision, parole and probation agents, and enormous caseloads, you've got to figure out who is your highest risk and provide the resources to that highest risk risk offender, correct? That is correct. And one of, one of the distinctions within Washington State, and this has been going on uh, ever since 2007, I believe, uh, it might even be 2005, <clears throat> they had a, a statute that went through the legislature called the Offender Accountability Act. And what it essentially said was, we're going to use a risk assessment to determine who's lowest risk. And those lowest risk offenders are essentially not going to be supervised. If we can determine what's their probability of recidivism and it's within a range of being of low or very low risk, uh, then we don't feel it's 
you know, within our due diligence to, to give them extensive supervision. Uh, there's a fair amount of research out there that identifies that individuals that are of low risk of recidivism, the more you supervise them, actually the more likely you are to observe behavior um, and, and they end up um, becoming more likely to commit crimes simply because of these observational effects. We end up reincarcerating the wrong people. That's the bottom line. That, that is the bottom line. And, and so what Washington State has done and has been doing for years is, is essentially say, you know, administrative supervision or no supervision for those individuals that are of these lower tiered risks. Um, and that not only has sort of fell in line with risk, need, and responsivity theory, but it's also saved the state a lot of money. Um, and evaluations of this change in statute has essentially identified no appreciable uh, no, no uptick in recidivism following it, its passing. So uh, the effect has essentially been a net win for the state. We're more than halfway through the program. I do want to reintroduce our guest, Zachary Hamilton, Assistant Professor, Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology, Director of the Washington State Institute for Criminal Justice at the Washington State University. Mason Burley is also by our microphone, Senior Research Associate, Washington State Institute for Public Policy. Again, I'll continue to praise the Washington State Institute for Public Policy for putting out extraordinarily good research, some of the best in the United States, www.wsipp.com. WA.gov. Let me go into a little bit more about this individual uh, research and then get more, uh, uh, talk more about policy um, questions. So, what you did with this research was take a look at non violent uh, felony convictions, non violent felony convictions, and any conviction over the course of a two year period to measure uh, the accuracy of, of the risk instrument used for the uh, state of Washington. Uh, and you took a look at that, um, and basically you said that in some cases uh, the degree of probability went as high as 70%, and that was for the nonviolent felony con- uh, convictions. Is that correct? Yeah, that's for the well, – I'm sorry. You know, Washington State has a longstanding history of using risk assessment um, with the, the – Department of Corrections, the prison population that are that are under supervision, mm-hmm. and so we're able to kind of look at the risk elements that we use for that population and see if the same risk assessment is a valid tool for other populations as well. And so, as you mentioned, we looked at violent felony and nonviolent felony um, for DOC, and and you know, for the DOC population, between the highest risk um, offenders, sixty to seventy percent of those have a nonviolent. Um, a repeat crime of a nonviolent felony within two years. Mm-hmm. But now we, those you, are the people that you designated in in that category, and the results were validated by saying that seventy percent of the people that we put into that category did have a nonviolent felony conviction. Well, yes, we looked at the, that category of the prison population under supervision and compared individuals in the mental health system in Washington State to see if um, the same kind of elements could be used to predict um, two-year recidivism as well. Now, for that population, the recidivism rates were much lower, um, you know, two to three times lower in that in some circumstances. But the risk assessment tool is still valid in that we could distinguish between low, you know, moderate and high risk offenders um, along the continuum um, of, of risk. 
But what I'm suggesting or what I'm asking is is that uh, the paper basically says that there was a uh, – I'm, I'm simplifying things – an above 70 percent accuracy rate. Um, so what does that mean when you say it's an above – 0.75 accuracy rate, which is, to me, as a lay person, uh, that's basically said 75% of the time we were able to accurately predict. I, am I right or wrong? Oh, I, I misunderstood the question. Dr. Hamilton, maybe you want to jump in. And... Yeah, it's a, it's a little more nuanced than that. Uh, the way that you perceive that, you know, what you're terming the, the accuracy rate is, is the area under the curve statistic. It, and essentially what it says, and, and it's it, I'm going to explain it as, as hopefully as simply as possible, if you had two groups and you, you separated your two groups of people that, that you were observing into those that recidivated and those that did not, if you were to randomly select one person out of each one of those groups, uh, using this risk assessment, you would identify that uh, the individual that recidivated had a higher risk score 70% of the time. Had a higher risk score 70% of the time. Correct. That doesn't mean they, they went out and, and under your criteria or the criteria of the study were uh, convicted within a two-year time period that they had that higher probability. No, no. What, what we do is we take that risk score. We create a, a, a continuous risk score from zero to, you know, wherever it ends up being at, at its highest. Um, and with that continuous risk score, then you – uh, essentially dissected in, into several pieces, um, where you have a low, a moderate, a high nonviolent, and a high violent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within any one of those groups, you can identify what's the probability of somebody who falls into those categories recidivating. So for the layman's question, how accurate are these instruments? And using the example of, of what happened in the state of Washington, uh, is there a layman-esque answer to say that they would be accurate 70% of the time, 50% of the time, 60% of the time? Um, it, it's Again, it's, it's a little more nuanced than that. Uh, the instrument doesn't come out and say, you know, this person is going to recidivate. It, it doesn't come out with a yes or no answer and say, you know, th- this person is going to recidivate. This other person, person B, is not going to recidivate. What it does is it, it the score will provide a probability of recidivism. So mm-hmm. let's say the score ranges from zero to 100. Somebody that scores out at, at a 50 uh, may have a 30% likelihood of recidivism. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that 30% likelihood uh, puts them in the upper tier or a high-risk category, then that category can then be identified as, as having their aggregate probability of recidivism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets a, it gets a little more more complicated, but but essentially what we do is we utilize that area under the curve statistic to essentially rate that continuous risk score to say how accurate it is, and it also allows us to compare our instrument to someone else's instrument. But but to give a quick and easy answer to say this person's going to recidivate and this person's not, how accurate is the assessment? Uh, risk assessments aren't built to do that. They're they're built to provide guidelines for individuals to say who is higher risk as compared to another person that might be of moderate or lower risk. But it's inevitable that there are going to be false positives and false negatives. There is going to be inevitable that a certain number of people who are designated as high risk are not going to come back to the criminal justice system. There's a certain inevitable, it's inevitable that, that a person that you would designate as being low risk would come back to the criminal justice system. So there's got to be a, a certain understanding by the public that um, these are not perfect predictive 
um, analyses uh, that there are going to be false positives and false negatives. That is true. Um, and I believe either in the report or in one of the appendices of the report, we identify the, the probability of recidivism by falling into one of the, the many categories that we've uh, created the cut points for. So you can identify what's the probability of, of recidivism for high violent, high nonviolent, moderate, and low. And I think that's the, I was answering that question rather than the overall predictive, um, you know, ability of the model. And I think it's important that what I learned from this working with Dr. Hamilton as well is that the risk is on a, you know, continual scale. And um, we were able to kind of look at, even though there are false positives and false negatives, the likelihood of being able to tell which offenders you know, we're going to recidivate or which individuals will recidivate, you know, increases on a gradual basis as you move from low to high risk um, mm-hmm. based on the, what you find in the assessment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going to back, go back to uh, questions that I posed uh, right before the break. We have everybody and their uncle now putting out um, risk instruments of one shape or another. Uh, Microsoft came out with an app. Um, there are commercial entities that are basically saying to law enforcement agencies, um, we're going to be able to tell you uh, with higher degrees of probability who on the street is going to um, commit further crimes or commit um, violent crimes. Um, so we have a world is now moving towards predictive risk instruments beyond criminal justice. Uh, the private sector is, is, is doing this. Do you have any concerns about this? Because it, it is inevitable uh, that, uh, again, we have false positives. We have false negatives. We're going to be pinpointing people and, and talking about their probabilities for coming back into the criminal justice system, and we're going to be wrong. Yeah, I, I have lots of concerns uh, about that. Um, not necessarily that it's a private sector doing that. There's plenty of, of companies that exist in the private sector that uh, create great risk assessment instruments. My fear is is individuals from the private sector uh, potentially taking large data sources, not knowing how exactly they fit within the, the jurisdiction that they're evaluating, uh, and essentially spitting out a statistical model that um, is accurate to a degree, but that accuracy isn't really developed uh, within the known quantities of that particular jurisdiction. Every single location in the United States is slightly different um, and you, you do have a, a certain stability in terms of certain items being predictive, age being one of them, prior convictions being another. Uh, but individuals that are, are creating risk assessment instruments that, that don't have knowledge of that on-the-ground usage uh, or the variations in the population uh, could potentially create models that are not as accurate as they're claiming. Every time there is a mass shooting, every time there is a, um, um, a horrific violent crime in this country, a psychologist uh, will do an interview for CNN and say, even though the person had a history of mental health treatment, even though the person had a history of schizophrenia, and I do want to point out that uh, even though there are higher percentages of people who come from mental health backgrounds involved in the criminal justice system, the overwhelming majority of people who have mental health backgrounds are not going to be coming in into the criminal justice system. But a psychologist uh, or psychiatrist will stand up on CNN and say it is impossible to predict future criminal behavior. Yes, um, he had contact with the mental health system, but, you know, to, to predict this level of violence is just literally impossible. And then media will pick up the phone and call me and going and, and say, 
if these individuals cannot be if you, if you cannot predict their future criminality, then, you know, is it, you know, and then and the psychologist is saying it's impossible to predict future violent criminal behavior, then the risk instruments that you talk about, what good are they? So, I mean, do you see the, the level of confusion that uh, folks in the media and the general public would have when a psychologist gets up and makes a statement like that? I, yes, I can. And, you know, the, the issue is, is that these risk assessment instruments that, that we're discussing and that we've created, they're built for a particular population. So they're built for people that have contact with the criminal justice system. If nobody's had any contact with the criminal justice system, they've never been assessed for risk. So that's, that's one sort of limitation right there. Uh, the other is that there's individuals uh, that typically commit these crimes. A, a, a lot of times you'll see those psychiatrists uh, come up and say, you know, they, they have a, a, a mental illness or an undiagnosed mental illness. Um, again, if there's no data to be able to identify any of this person's prior behavior, which is a lot of what risk assessments are built upon, then it's difficult to assess somebody's risk. And particularly, again, going into the general population and identifying someone's risk of recidivism is usually not what risk assessments are built for. They're built for release decisions, uh, pretrial decisions, uh, decisions on probation or parole and supervision. So they're not necessarily built for that particular purpose. And to be you know, even more blunt, uh, they're built on an aggregate population. Um, and so we're addressing the aggregate risk or the average risk of a person within the population that we've had assessments for. Um, that individual that commits, you know, the, the, the serious events or a mass shooting um, that has never entered into one of those populations to be assessed, um, you're not going to have any identification of risk for that particular individual. And those events are so rare um, that they can't be predicted based on the average events that, that normally uh, criminals and offenders uh, commit. Our guests today make- have been uh, Dr. Zachary Hamilton, Assistant Professor, Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology, Director of the Washington State Institute for Criminal Justice and the Wash- at the Washington State, Institute, uh, Washington State University. Mason Burley has been by our microphone, Senior Research Associate, again, Washington State Institute for Public Policy, www.wsipp.wa.gov. Ladies and gentlemen, this is D.C. Public Safety. We appreciate your comments. We even appreciate your criticisms, and we want everybody to have themselves a very pleasant day.